All right, returning to chapter 1 and resuming at verse 17, I remind you that we are tracing the dual voices of our poetic narrative drama. Verses 1 to 10, as you may recall, is the voice of the poet-prophet, whom I believe is the author of this book, namely Jeremiah himself. It is Jeremiah's descriptive voice. He's describing the plight of lamentable Jerusalem, Judah. In verse 11, we meet the second voice in our drama, the I, my voice of Lady Jerusalem personified in her vocalization of her lamentable state. Verse 17 breaks the first-person narrative of the personified Jerusalem. She has been speaking, as I said, since verse 11, but in verse 17, the pattern is interrupted. She is interrupted here by the poet-narrator Jeremiah, who resumes, in the space of this one verse, his descriptive task about Zion's fate, a fate reciprocally described by the same poet-narrator voice in verse 6, where the duplication or replication of the name Zion is found. And on your macrochiastic outline, that is F and F prime, which is another argument for the fact that we reinforce reciprocally the narrator poet voice of Jeremiah himself in verse 17. Now, in addition to the reciprocal symmetry, which confirms that we're hearing Jeremiah's voice again in this verse, the shift in speaker is evident in the double use of the pronoun her in this verse. In the 17th verse, you'll notice the pronoun her occurs twice referring to Lady Jerusalem as the object of the description again, which is the style of the poet-prophet Jeremiah in verses 1 to 10. We also notice that the prophet reprises the no-comforter expression in verse 9. In fact, here in verse 17, it is an exact duplication of the Hebrew phrase in verse 9. Now, that is also parallel to the same Hebrew phrase slightly rearranged in verse 2. He is piling up his stress upon the absent comforter, the absent comforter paradigm as his poetic drama unfolds. You will notice that the emphatic no comforter, verse 2, no comforter, verse 9, No comforter, verse 17, and the variant, no helper, in verse 7, and far distant comforter, in verse 16. I will observe that in a couple of these instances, the poet-narrator is imaging or mirroring the cries of the personified city herself. In spreading her hands in the 17th verse, Daughter Zion implores implores her former lovers, her precious treasures, her pagan idols, her young and old soldiers, imploringly beseeches all her resources to lift, to break, to penetrate the encircling siege line which strangles and starves and slays the sons and daughters of Jacob. The name Jacob, that beloved patriarchal father of the twelve tribes, as if to echo God's dreadful command against the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, Jacob Israel, reprised in his first fierce command, against the two tribes of the southern kingdom, Jacob, Judah. 
all those round about Jacob, Zion, are adversaries. Edom, Syria, Moab, Ammon, all these have joined with Babylon to oppress, to conquer, to subjugate, and to deport the sons and daughters of Judah. Verse 18, the voice of the city returns to the narrative of our poetic drama. We've had the interruption in 17 with Jeremiah's voice. Now we return to the voice of the personified city, Lady Jerusalem, which had begun in verse 11. It is a voice making a declaration. The declaration of the daughter of Zion is that Yahweh is righteous. Lady Jerusalem recognizes one of the essential attributes of God. God is just and righteous. Reflexively, does she also recognize one of her attributes? Namely, She is unrighteous and unjust. Is she merely stating a fact? Or is she contritely confessing? Is her rebelliousness grieving her soul? Or is she merely stating the formal facts of her debacle? Is she broken-hearted? for revolting against God's mouth. Mouth is the literal reading of the Hebrew text, as the NASB margin indicates, the mouth of God being an allusion to the words of God's mouth, which he has revealed by his servants, the prophets, especially the prophet Jeremiah. Now, I placed my interrogatives in the form of questions because I am inclined to detect a measure of genuine contrition in this line from the parallel use of the Hebrew word for rebellion, which appears here and then again in verse 20. That word rebellion is significant, in my opinion, And its meaning here is exegetically expanded by its reappearance in verse 20. There, in the 20th verse, daughter Zion acknowledges that she is greatly troubled in spirit or greatly troubled in her soul. And she is greatly troubled for her rebellious nature and acts. And in that verse 20, she confesses, O Lord, I have been very rebellious. That is the voice of contrition. That is the voice of confession. And it is the voice that also illuminates the words here in verse 18. It is a voice acknowledging more than the bare fact of sin. It is a voice acknowledging more than the formal posture of sin. It is a voice which needs to be heard. A voice which needs to be heard more and more in the modern Christian community than it is heard There is far too much self-righteous, self-justification in the modern church, where sin is a theory, sin is an abstraction, sin belongs to everyone else but me. When it comes to sin, the modern church is steeped in arrogance, 
Sin is in thee, but not, never, in me. And if you challenge me, I will prove you to be the sinner, not me. The epigenetical relation of verse 20 to verse 18 makes it clear to me, at least in my opinion, that we have genuine, sincere confession of sin and rebellion here due to the unrighteous revolt against the just and righteous words of God. Genuine confession joined with honest contrition and brokenness of soul. Brokenness which causes Lady Jerusalem to cry out, See, O Lord, see me as the unrighteous rebel that I am. Behold my broken and troubled spirit in which I am sorrowful and contrite for my violation of the words of your sacred mouth. See me, O Lord, as I really am. I really am a rebel. I really am a depraved sinner. I really have rejected the words of your mouth. See, O Lord, and hear my brokenness of heart. The chiastic symmetry between this verse and verse 5, E and E prime on your macro chiastic outline, the chiastic symmetry features the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the captivity of the exiled citizens of Judah and Jerusalem. Suffering, suffering has finally brought the clear light of God's righteous nature, the clear light of daughter Zion's iniquity. Suffering has finally brought the clear and just light of the holy judgment of God for daughter Zion's transgressions. I have rebelled. Indeed, so say we all. I have rebelled against the righteous Lord God. O Lord, we flee to Thee for mercy. We plead with Thee for grace. We take refuge in Thee and Thee alone for salvation from our despicable rebellions against thy holy mouth. Lord Jesus Christ, save us from our sins. Blessed Holy Spirit, deliver us from our rebellious hearts. Transform, regenerate our heart by your supernatural grace. Beloved God, our Father, give us the mind and heart of the sons and daughters of heaven, a heart of love for your commandments as heaven's hearts love and adore your commandments. Verse 19. In the mirror reflection, verse 4, which corresponds chiastically to verse 19, you will note your macrochiasm outline D and D prime, we meet the renegade priests of the temple in Jerusalem. Let us keep in mind that the portrait of this priest caste painted by the prophet Jeremiah in his prophetic work, is one of profiteers. Profiteers in idolatry. 
profiteers in religious harlotry, profiteers in general fleecing of the sheep of Jerusalem. Some things never change. Indeed, some things never change. In verse 4, these priests groan undoubtedly from the slashing swords of their enemies or from the hunger pangs that grip their empty bellies. Here in verse 19, they perish within the temple precincts of the city that they had proclaimed an invincible refuge. You remember their clarion slogan, which they sung like a litany of a hymn, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these, and we stand inside the temple of the Lord. Be it invincible, we are invincible. All the while, as those same priests desecrated the temple courts of the Lord with images of Baal, sexual prostitution before the altar of the Lord, burning babies in the sacrificial fires devoted to the murderous cult of Moloch and Chemosh, religious officials promoting sexual license and perversity, religious officials endorsing infanticide, religious officials bastardizing the true worship of Yahweh Adonai. Some things never change. Some things never change. When the Babylonians breached the gates and the courts of the temple, no idols saved those priests from their swords. When swords flashed with the blood of idolatrous priests slain in the temple, no sacred harlots came out to save them by prostituting themselves before the enemy. When the crush of death hung over them, no invocations or supplications to Baal, Astarte, Moloch, or Chemosh saved them. Even those who escaped the sword and the treachery of the priestly lovers perished in the streets from famine and starvation. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? The priests received their food from the sacrifices offered at the temple. They now starve because there are no offerings being brought to the temple. What fed them, even as they desecrated it, has been destroyed and they along with it. The irony is delicious. And I say that ironically. Now, you also notice the food imagery here is parallel to that of another verse in this first chapter, verse 11, where the duplicate phrase to restore or strengthen their soul, the New American Standard margin reads, restore their soul, which is the better translation of the Hebrew literally. They have no food to restore their soul. They are starving from hunger if they survived the bloodletting of the initial onslaught. Verse 20. Once again, we observe that the language from the mouth of personified Lady Jerusalem here in verse 20 mirrors the descriptive language of the poet-prophet Jeremiah in verse 3. C and C prime on your macrochiastic outline. 
The word distress is expanded by verse 20. What has been launched upon her by her pursuers in verse 4 is here death inside and death outside, by which I mean death in the house and death out in the streets. The root cause of this distress, signaled by a key clause in the Hebrew, meaning on account of or because of, the root cause of this distress is the sinful rebellion of the city. That rebellion has not only turned things inside out, it has also turned things upside down. My heart is overturned within me. My heart is turned upside down within me. Life has been turned upside down with death. A secure city has been turned upside down with invasion. A magnificent 10th century B.C. temple has been turned upside down to 6th century B.C. rubble. The world of that generation has been completely turned upside down. Now in this verse, we have the third sea, O Lord, which we have encountered in our poetic narrative. The other two occurrences in verse 9 and verse 11. But here... Here it is the most penetrating sea, O Lord. Penetrating to, notice the text, my heart. And it is the most poignant sea, O Lord. I have been very rebellious. As I already pointed out when I commented on verse 18 earlier this evening, Lady Jerusalem, Jerusalem is owning up. She is fessing up to her sins and asking God to look upon her sinfully rebellious heart. See, O Lord, that heart. See that heart, she confesses, for it is the cause of her present distress. She is finally, finally troubled in spirit. Troubled enough in spirit as to finally admit that the sword in the street and the death in the house, the death inside and out, the sword in the street and the death in the house is her fault. She is to blame. Her sinful, rebellious acts, her hatred and despite against the words of God's sacred mouth, have brought all of this misery upon her. See, O Lord, my rebellious heart, it is my heart out of which your judgment has been visited in return. She is the cause of her own misery and at last suffering forces her, compels her, To acknowledge it. She turned evil into her own pleasure. She exchanged the good and moral will of God for wickedness. She revolted against justice and righteousness in her embrace of serial unrighteousness and injustice. See, O Lord, she cried. Look, look upon my wicked heart and my wicked deeds which have flowed from my wicked heart. Out of the heart, out of the heart, or what Jesus says, come all manner of iniquity. It is suffering which causes her to cry out, It is lamentable, painful, agonizing suffering 
which causes her to confess. To confess her rebellions against God from her heart. Suffering makes her contrite. Suffering brings her to repentance. Suffering is the means by which she experienced a broken and a contrite heart, which the Lord will not despise. Let no one despair. A broken and contrite heart, the Lord will not, he will not despise such a heart. But that is the heart for which he seeks. That is the heart he wishes to see. That is the heart upon which he looks. He looks at brokenness and contrition with favor. In verse 21, we detect a decided shift in focus. Now, it is not the case that here we have not had the Babylonian enemies in view before we have. But in the preceding verses of chapter 1, the enemy adversary has appeared descriptively what I would label analytically. What he has done and how he has done it has been the focus of the narrative. It is his role as an instrument. It is his role as an instrument in God's sovereign will to punish Lady Jerusalem for her sins. It is that which has been detailed to date. But here, here in verses 21 and 22, because 21 and 22 go together as we will see. Here in verses 21 and 22, at the close of the opening descriptive and personalized narrative of Zion's fall, daughter Jerusalem asks the sovereign Lord God to repay her enemies according to the same standard of divine punishment. In other words, to use Paul's language, let them reap what they have sown, even as I have reaped what I have sown. This language of the plea for vindication this plea for God to punish the enemies of his people. This is language which is frequent in the Psalms. I mentioned Psalm 74, 79, 83, 137, 143 particularly the psalms of imprecation. That is, asking the Lord to judge the psalmist's enemies or the enemies of God's city or God's nation. The psalms of imprecation particularly reveal this longing for God to bring his wrath down upon those who have oppressed attacked and destroyed his people as well as his servants. We are conscious immediately that there is something eschatological about this language and this desire. God will send forth his wrath against the wicked on that day when hell and heaven will be revealed in their final fullness. God will punish the wicked with eternal fire, holding them accountable for all their impenitent sins 
even their sins of oppressing, attacking, and even destroying his servants, his people of his grace, his lambs of the eschatological shepherd under whom he has so marvelously placed them. We are not deceived, as the psalmist's daughter Zion here, the Apostle Paul and our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 25 have declared, we are not deceived, the wicked will receive full and perfect justice. They will receive full and perfect retribution on the day of our Savior's appearing, which is one reason why they ought to be urged as long as there is life in their bodies to flee the wrath to come. This plea for parallel judgment against the enemies of Judah and Jerusalem is also revealed elsewhere in the corpus of Jeremiah's inspired scripture. Chapters 47 to 51 of the book of Jeremiah detail God's pledge to visit the enemies of Judah and Jerusalem with his condign wrath. Lady Jerusalem's petition here, that as God has brought the day of his fierce anger upon her, so may he bring that day of his fierce anger upon Babylon and her allies. Lady Jerusalem's petition is the petition for an imminent manifestation of the transcendent eschatological wrath of God. As she is now suffering under the wrath of God an eschatological experience, so may her enemies, who are at once God's enemies, so may her enemies also suffer the wrath of God and eschatological experience. Let my enemies become like me, she cries. Notice the parallel symmetry of the simile. Like me, the last word in verse 21, with the last word in verse 20, the symmetry, like death. A parallel and symmetrical simile, like the death that I am experiencing May that same death be experienced by my enemies. Here is the plea for the near realization of the apocalyptic consummation. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Revelation 6.10 Thy wrath, O Lord, came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy. Revelation 11:18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Revelation 14, 8, 18, 2. Will it be any less furious than the fall of Jerusalem, 586 B.C.? I think not. I think not. The suffering of this 6th century B.C. city contains the plaints of those who long for the eschatological city. Even as they long for the eschatological reckoning, the eschatological avenging, the eschatological wrath and grace, when that great whore Babylon will once and for all be consumed in the furnace of that last day. Suffering will become eschatological joy on that day. Sorrow will become eschatological delight on that day. The voice of the prophet will be transcended by the voice of the lamb who was slain and suffered outside the city on their behalf so that he might bring them to a lasting city 
where they shall sorrow and suffer no more. Yea, no more forever shall the elect of the Lord and the sons and daughters of his grace suffer any longer. It brings us to the conclusion, our examination of the first chapter. Do you have any questions about anything or comments that you would like to share? Yes, David? The priests that desecrated the temple and committed sacrilege, how much of that was symptom and how much of that was cause? Uh, the two go together. Um, it was a symptom of their own rebellion against the commandments of God and, of course, the holiness of his invisible presence. <clears throat> but it was also a cause of God's judgment being brought upon the temple precincts. In other words, because they had desecrated it, he swept it all away along with them. <clears throat> Any attempt to restore that temple was but a faint uh, facsimile or replica of what had been before, even in the days of Haggai. They said the glory of this temple is nowhere near the glory of that former temple. <clears throat> and the priesthood that survived there became, particularly in the days of the Maccabees, so corrupt that it could never have been called a godly, uh, <clears throat> a godly priesthood in any way, shape, or form. And what would we say? of the priestcraft of the time of our Lord's own earthly ministry. At any rate, in any event, what I'm attempting to say is that the sin of their own idolatrous delight was symptom and cause of the judgment that came upon the temple and upon Jerusalem. Never let it be thought that those who stand behind a pulpit do not, in, in many ways, <clears throat> invite the judgment of God upon themselves if they do not speak the truth with sincerity. Yes, Ben? I, I think I struggle a little bit with the, uh, with this section here. No, it's Jeremiah is the one that is inspired to write uh, in the way of the voice of Jerusalem. Now, how does this relate to the actual situation on the ground, so to speak. You know, the people that live in Jerusalem, who's, uh, Jeremiah, who is saying this, uh, but who is, he pers- who, who is he speaking on behalf of? Who is, is he speaking? He's speaking on behalf of those who are there in the city and who have been in the city in the throes or, or grip of this lamentable destruction and their agony. So he is personifying the voice of the city as that voice which cries up unto God out of its own agony and oppression and suffering. So he becomes the recorder of that voice. <clears throat> he's, he's recording it, but it is the voice of what he has heard as he has lived through it himself. So he records his own descriptive experience. And he becomes, and he describes the voice of the personified city. He, and he puts those two together, as you can see from the, from the chiasm, he puts them together in reciprocal symmetry. So he's, he's, he is the inspired recorder of both voices. Yeah, yeah, all of this is genuinely part of the historical record. He is, he is amassing it in a poetic style. And when it's her voice, he's listening to all the cries that he heard and he lived through, the drama that he experienced. Does that make sense? Okay. Very good question. Thank you. Yes, Randy. So, on the, in the same vein, is it kind of the remnant, the righteous remnant that's left, or the city as a whole? It's the city as a whole. You're, you're pressing a very good point, Randy. Lamentations doesn't address the issue of the remnant itself. Jeremiah does in his prophecy. But in that prophecy, the remnant is that which goes away into captivity, into exile, and is promised return. 
Does that mean that there was no, shall we say, stragglers of that remnant left in Jerusalem? Well, Jeremiah certainly was part of it because he survived and was forced to go down into Egypt himself. We could even say that Gedaliah, the governor who was assassinated, was part of that righteous remnant. But it's interesting, and the reason I say your question pushes, is it's interesting that there's no reflection on them as far as their presence in Judea after the destruction of the city. And that group that went down to Egypt, they went down in disobedience of the word of God, even though they forced Jeremiah to go along with them. So I don't regard them as a part of a righteous remnant. So I look, I look for the promise of the remnant according to the election of grace in this instance. I look to that in that group that went away to Babylon and then returned after the death, at, at the coming of, uh, at the death of the uh, Babylonian Empire and the rise of Cyrus the Great and the Persians in 539. Yes, God. Kind of related to this, um, do you, since you're seeing genuine contrition here, do you see that it all played out later in the book? Yes, yes, you will see it reinforced, particularly in chapter 3, which, of course, is the capstone of the book. All right, well, go ahead and take your break, and then we'll come back to look at the next challenge, namely the outline of chapter 2. All right, now... Uh, there is a method to my madness in handing you two copies of the outline of Lamentations 2. And we'll come to that as we proceed. But we want to spend some time now talking about this second chapter outline because you will notice similarity, that is, it is a macrochiasm as chapter 1 was. And that's another reason you may want to have the outline for chapter 1 just alongside of you there so you can glance at it. But this is a macrochiasm which is concatenated. So we want to think a little bit about that. First of all, what's a macrochiasm? What's that prefix macro mean? Very good. All encompassing. All-encompassing. So the whole chapter has a all-encompassing chiastic pattern. And here, uh, the chiasm refers to that part of the letter X, which has the A point and the A prime point reciprocally related or mirroring one another and so B and B prime and so on down the line. The chiasm is an inverted symmetry and we see it here as we saw it in chapter 1 but we see it more interestingly here as I'll point out in a moment. Uh, We can also call the chiasm a mirror symmetry. And you can see that the language of line A or labeled line A in verse 1 reappears in line A prime or verse 22. You see the anger of God or the day of God's anger, uh, Yom Afo in the Hebrew, (coughs) mirroring itself there. Uh, in the actual Hebrew language as well. So <clears throat> there's a virtual duplication or replication of the language of the original Hebrew text in these <clears throat> chiastically reciprocal lines. <clears throat> now there's one <clears throat> uh, other word. This is an inverted symmetry, a reciprocal symmetry. It's a mirror symmetry. <clears throat> it's also a mimetic mimetic symmetry, which comes from the Greek word mimesis, which means to to imitate. So the mimetic feature here in the chiasm is another clue 
to how these <clears throat> uh, parallel or symmetrical patterns <clears throat> imitate one another. So you can actually look at A and A prime, B and B prime, and see that there's an <clears throat> imitation pattern there. And that's particularly interesting if we're talking about the dual voices in this poetic narrative drama. In other words, are the voices imitating one another? Are they reciprocally or mirror-like reflecting one another? Well, that's a question that we'll address as we go forward. But nonetheless, there's a richness to the way this is constructed that is simply more than an interesting pattern that Denison set out on paper. <clears throat> There, there is real genius here, inspired genius, and there is a, a depth of, of uh, power, the depth of uh, real uh, uh, majesty here in the way that the chiasm functions, whether it's inversion, whether it's mirror-like, or whether it's mimetic. All of those are aspects of how the chiastic pattern works, and you realize that it was constructed this way. You realize that Jeremiah wrote it this way. He wrote it in such a way that we would be drawn into that majesty and depth and the drama and the richness of this reciprocation, mirror-like imagery, and mimetic patterns. It's, it's all there. It's there for us to benefit from. <clears throat> So it's not accidental. It's it's not uh, you know it's not me reading into the text something is not there because as you can see <clears throat> the Hebrew is duplicated. The very same words are duplicated in the reciprocal relationships. We already pointed out the day of God's anger <clears throat> in verse one and verse twenty-two. It's there. It's, it's the same terms are in the Hebrew text. So he wrote it that way. You see. He constructed it that way. He wanted it to do exactly what we've been able to outline here on your sheet that you can see that he did it. All right, now, this is an acrostic. We can't lose sight of the acrostic feature. Chapter 1 was a 22-verse acrostic, and you have all the Hebrew letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order in chapter 1, from verse 1 to verse 22. Here in chapter 2, we have the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in an acrostic style. Are they in the same order as they were in chapter 1? We'll ask our Hebrew professor. I Oh, they're, yeah, they're not. No, that's where they're opposite. This, this which which chapter is they opposite? opposite? They are opposite in chapter 2. Very good. And what letters are opposite? Uh, He's talking I about verse 16 and verse 17. I and an A, which, which uh, look like a Y. Good. And, uh, and I don't know what you, you call this, a backward C with a line in the middle of it? That's good. You know, pay. All right, if you look at verse 16 and 17 on your first chapter outline, you will notice in verse 16, the Hebrew letter on the left-hand side looks like a kind of, uh, of a Y with a collapsed leg. Okay? Then the next letter in 17 in chapter 1 is a pay, like a kind of backward C with a, uh, an upward hook at the top. Now, if you look at chapter 2, at verses 16 and 17, you'll notice that those letters are reversed. So what's the normal order? The normal order is the pay ion, I'm sorry, the ion pay in chapter 1, the kind of flattened Y and then the <clears throat> what looks like a backward C. In chapter 2, he has reversed them. In verse 16, it's the pay, the backward C, and then the flattened Y in verse 17. Wait a minute. You're saying that chapter 1, 2 is reversed? Chapter 2 is reversed. 
The normal order is iron pay, correct? Yes. Okay. So chapter two, it's pay iron. I'm looking at an out of order. <laughs> I knew it was out of order in chapter two, and, and I said that outlines the wrong order. All right. So why does he vary the, the acrostic? <clears throat> he does follow the acrostic, but he varies it by placing in verse 16 and 17 two letters in reverse order. Well, that means you're going to have to come back when we get to verses 16 and 17. And I will give you a suggestion as to why I think he has done that. But this is a very interesting conundrum that none of the Hebrew scholars have been able to resolve. So, it is a variation which bothers them because they can't figure it out. Now, I'm not saying I've got it figured out, though I may. But in any event, this is a, this is a famous little crooks for uh, the scholarly Hebrew interpreter. And it will not be the only place we see it in the acrostic fashion of this poem as we go forward. So at any rate, you've seen it here. But the point is we still have the acrostic. We begin at the top with Aleph, and then we go to base and so on, down to the Tav at the bottom, <clears throat> with the exception of verses 16 and 17 in chapter 2. So, <clears throat> chapter 2 is an acrostic. It is an acrostic with a slight variation. Verses 16 and 17 reverse the normal alphabetic order of the I-N and the Pei. And it is an acrostic which appears in a chiastic sta- uh, fashion. In fact, the whole chapter is a holistic chiasm. And you can see the repetition of the words as they uh, flow out of the Hebrew text and compare A with A prime, B and B prime, and so on. Down the line, you can see that the the symmetry of repeated words in each of those uh, points. For instance, in B, you see... on not spared and on the ground. In B prime, which is verse 21... On the ground, not sparing. The very same parallel words in the second verse as in the 21st verse and so on uh, throughout the whole poem. But this chapter does something that chapter 1 does not do. And that's the reason I gave you two copies. This chapter concatenates the chapter, concatenates the verses. Okay, what's concatenation mean? Let's break that word down. Any time in English that you see the prefix con or com, they come from the Latin word cum. Abigail, do you know what cum means? It means with. Yes. Abigail, do you know how to make cum into a symbol? No. You haven't taken pharmacy yet. Okay. Does anybody know how you can make cum into a symbol? Any of you, do any of you see your prescriptions anymore? Rx. Oh. Oh. Take two pills a day with water. See with a line over the top, that's the pharmaceutical symbol for cum in Latin. Of course, prescriptions were originally written in Latin, and they got a shorthand to, so they didn't have to write C-U-M out all the time. Okay, so con or cum or com in English means to go along with. All right, now the other word here is another Latin word, catena. You know any famous catenas, Scott? Aria catenas. Yes. Thomas Aquinas wrote some famous catenas. That's right. What's a catena mean? Uh, I don't remember. It's a gospel study he did, so it's probably some 
It's probably a synopsis of the gospel. Yeah, it means a collection of things that are connected together or actually chained together. Catena is the Latin word for chain. So, concatenate, to chain with. Or, as we've said before, in French, les mots crochet. The crocheted words. If you crochet a sweater or a scarf, you chain it all together, don't you? You go from one link to the next. You hook it all together that way. Now, I gave you two sheets so that you can hook chapter two together. Now, you probably can't see it from where you are, but here's my sheet hooking it all together. Let's take a look at it. In verse one, we have the word Lord. Hebrew, it's Adonai. In verse two, right underneath verse one, we have the word Lord Adonai again. He connects or chains or concatenates verse 1 with a word that reappears in verse 2. So you can draw a kind of line between Lord in 1 and Lord in 2, and you can see how he's strung them together. Well, what do you see in verse 2 that also appears in verse 3? Jacob. So you can draw a little line there and hook those two verses together. So He's got a concatenated chain link device hooking this whole poem together. It goes from beginning to end, with one exception that we'll point out. So what do you see in three that appears in verse four? Like fire. What do you see in four that appears in five? Like an enemy. What do you see in five and six? Destroyed. What do you see in six and seven? Appointed feast, what do you see in seven and eight? Walls, what do you see in eight and nine? Yahweh, what do you see in nine and ten? Ground, on the ground or, or uh, to the ground, either way. What do you see in ten and eleven? Ground or earth again. Ground and earth are uh, the, the same word, aretz in Hebrew can mean ground, earth, or sometimes even land. Okay, and then what do you see in eleven and twelve? Very good. Okay. Very good. We actually have three words that uh, hook those two verses together. What do you see between 12 and 13? No concatenatio. No concatenation. Why? Why did he break the pattern? Well, you've got to come back when we get there. So I would keep you in suspense for why he reverses the iron and pay in 16 and 17, and we'll keep you in suspense a little bit as to why he doesn't concatenate verse 12 and 13. Meanwhile, we'll see the sponsors, I guess. Meanwhile, what? Meanwhile, we'll talk to the sponsors for a while. It's <laughs> the way the television keeps you coming back. You know? uh, there are no sponsors of this gig, I'll tell you. All right, verses 13 and 14. What do you see hooked together there? Two or for you. Two or for you. 14 and 15. About. About 15 and 16. Is. Is. 16, 17, and 18. Day. Day. Very good. 18 and 19. Night. Night. 19 and 20. Little ones. Little ones. 20 and 21. Plain. Plain and 21 and 22. Very good. All right, so you have the whole concatenation of verse of chapter 2 as well as the macrochiastic structure. This is brilliant. This is inspired genius, and it is divinely inspired. I grant you that, but this is brilliant. He has tied this whole chapter sequentially together in a marvelous chain link sequence of integrity. The one exception of that line between 12 and 13.
But I think I can explain the reason for that when we get there. All right, any questions about the form? A marvelous acrostic again is chapter 1. An acrostic which follows the alphabetic sequence is chapter 1 with one variation. An acrostic which is chiastic in its order as in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, something new. Not only an acrostic. Not only an acrostic chiastically mirrored but an acrostic chiastically mirrored with concatenation, with chain link integrity, with hooks, with les mots crochet. Yes, David. Uh, An irregular or not common construction lends emphasis. Three years of law school and a successful bar exam, do not a lawyer make. That's a little bit of an irregular construction. Is what we're seeing here when he has that break equivalent of an irregular or not common construction to lend emphasis? That's a very good observation, David, and I will address it when I get there. You may be on the right track, but I'm not going to give away the the barn yet. Nonetheless, what David has observed is that when we get this concatenation pattern, whether there's an irregularity in it or not, in other words, he's done something different in chapter 2. He is doing something different for the point of emphasis, as David points out. Yes. So, pay attention. You see? He's trying to attract your attention and your interest and your mind and, of course, your heart as well, your whole being. He's trying to draw that into the drama of what he has constructed here so artistically. This is an artist at work. This is a poetic artist at work. Yes, Ben. Now, I realize that all of this that you have, that you're exposing to us, is lost in translation. It is. So, is this then... Inspired to pray so that they may know that by, like the confession states, that they may know that it is the will of God, not only because of the beauty and, uh, and things like that, uh, but the inner testimony, that this belongs then to, to, to the, the beauty of the writing, or the, which is greater than the ordinary. Yes, I hope that that, that that encourages you to see that. But it also would say, look, if I really want to grasp this, I need to study Hebrew. Yeah. In other words, if, if, if I want to hear it the way a Hebrew, the way an Old Testament Jew would hear it. Okay. So he does this in order to catch their ear. Can you imagine them listening to him read this or them read it out or hear it read? Can you imagine them hearing the concatenation as it goes? They'd hear the very same words. And they would say, aha, a deeper, richer emphasis as we go through this. So now it's my job to try to draw that out, even in the English, okay? <clears throat> but the point is, I can prove it's there from the original text, which is one of the reasons the confession says it's inspired in the original, which drives us to the original. Without knowing the original languages in some form, you really can't understand the power of the text. Yes, Scott. There's going to be even more emphases when an element of the chiasm, keywords for the chiasm, matches a concatenation term. Like you've got ground and B and both these, and then you've got ground three times and, you know, 9, 10, and 11. And then you've got enemy and G, and you've got enemy and a concatenation of 4. And, and, yeah, yes, um, I'm not denying that there may be some increased emphasis where you have repetition of the very same words, uh, whether where they may be concatenated or not concatenated. Anytime there's duplication in Semitic idiom, there is an increase of emphasis. Now, is it the same emphasis? Okay. 
or or not. Now, that's another issue that has to be addressed as we look at the chiastic style. Where it is chiastically reciprocal or chiastically parallel, it is definitely a mirror-like device. Where it is not, it may be doing something different. Maybe. Any other questions? Over here. I'm noticing on for the handout number two, the little C has a couple of dots at the bottom. Is that just an accident? And that's not there in the on the limitations two. What are you referring to? The little backward C. Oh, like the pay that we were talking about? Yeah. Yes, okay. One has two little dots at the bottom, and the other one doesn't. No, that's just an accident of, of, of cutting and pasting it. Oh, okay, okay. They're not supposed to be uh, they're, 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 they're little uh, scribal marks, and I, I don't even know what they mean, so uh, don't worry about them. <laughs> Any other questions about the form? All right, well, um, I'm not going to jump into Chapter 2. I'll leave that for uh, next time. So bring your uh, outline for chapter two back. You can, you, know, you can bring both of them if you wish. But uh, we'll close with a word of prayer, and then uh, after we're done, I'll make a comment as well. So let's pray. Father, we stand in amazement at your word, not just the ease with which we understand it because of the excellent translations at our disposal. But we thank you that we can appreciate even more deeply what you have inspired in the original tongue. Thank you for the genius of Jeremiah. We thank you for the breadth of imagery that he has uh, recorded in this poetic style. And we thank you for the two voices of lamentation that are before us. We pray, O Lord, that these voices will drive us to the eschatological Jeremiah. It will drive us to the eschatological Jerusalem. We pray that the sorrow which is here, the sorrow which was embodied in the destruction of a great city, that that sorrow will drive us to the man of sorrows, to the one who has borne the grief of our sins and rebellion, to your dear son, beloved of you from all eternity, who laid aside his glory and took upon himself the bondage of a servant. We bless you for that wonderful work of incarnation, for it is the very key to our salvation. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you refresh us with the gospel of Christ as we look at the poetry of Jeremiah. That we pray your blessing upon our studies and our devotion and our thinking and our reflecting. And we pray, O Lord, for those in Roseburg who grieve and suffer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.